Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Good evening. Welcome to The Poetry Project. My name is Ariel Goldberg. Francis is going to read first, and then we'll take a short break. I'm going to introduce Francis. In Chelsea Manning's sentence to 35 years at Fort Leavenworth, a male prison, the judge also ruled she could not give interviews for the length of her imprisonment. Francis's recent play, Won't Be a Ghost, picks up at this death of a voice at the hands of the US government. The play recites open source to heart. Francis's playwriting takes the news or what falls underneath the news and makes it extremely intimate. Embedded in their exploration of the public and intimate is a relentless fight against the enforcement of the gender binary, asking what shape is a wound that keeps being reopened. Leslie Allison wrote the music for and led a choir who sings this, I guess, chorus. The wound is the sexual organ that we all share in Francis's play, Won't Be a Ghost. This involves meditation on how characters can be deceived and lost, what exists as unsaid or inside. Francis composed a dialogue of reenacted online chats. Ping speaks out as the quiet waiting restlessness for a response on an instant platform. Sad face gets spoken, hug, spoken, asking how to encrypt, then to expose. Francis has begun working in a style of interlinked narratives that you'll hear from tonight that stretch far into history with St. Sebastian in relation to martyrdom and Chelsea Manning in asking the question what it means to become a hacktivist or what belongs in the public domain. How does one battle with the model of visibility in a time of surveillance? This is not a metaphor of access to information, self-determined, Self-determination is posed against systemic oppressions. Francis is at work on a long-term set of questions of gender as it moves subtly and gender's relationship also to death. Yay, Synchronicity in the Universe, Francis's 2013 play about a collaboration in progress interrupted by the sudden death of their friend and fellow playwriter, asks huge questions about grieving in art as well as how to have intergenerational conversations about HIV and AIDS as it still rages on individuals. Their plays are deeply inquisitive, looking all over the present tense for where arrows are thrown into the heart. Francis works in the realm of the grave, but more specifically, how to move gravity. A range of violence still walks amidst the flourish of the camp. Please help me in welcoming Francis Weiss-Rapkin. Okay, um, so I'm going to be reading a series of short little essays, uh, very recent, um, and they all vaguely deal with um, encryptions. One, the building at Fort Meade is a glassy black mirror, absorbing light and reflecting back fear. The building is behemoth, the number of people employed by the NSA is classified, but it is estimated that roughly 20,000 people are at work inside. Rows upon rows of parked cars reflect in the facade of the building, visually doubling the building's occupancy in an arch architectural automimicry, an evolutionary type of camouflage, 
like the omniscient eye spots on moth wings. The building suggests the same potential energy of a dark computer screen, the gears still whirring silently, the microphone always on. In the late 1990s, a number of NSA analysts were developing a program called Thin Thread. Under Thin Thread, the agency collected international communications and data, drawing algorithmic connections between travel records, monetary transactions, GPS, emails, and phone calls. It treaded the thin line of legality. The focus was international, but so much of the communication came through the US and the net was so wide. The thread could be pulled indefinitely, unraveling US citizens' privacy rights and due process. Some analysts understood this program. <coughs> so, excuse me. Some analysts understood this program was a legal and moral tightrope. And by early 2001, they built lines of encryption code to restitch a cover for our nudity. But after 9/11, the thin thread program was canceled. Top secret executive orders written up by Vice President Cheney's legal advisor established that the president had executive right to order the NSA to ramp up surveillance and under the Patriot Act, disregard citizens' rights to protection against unlawful search and seizure. They called the new program Trailblazer and essentially used thin thread but burnt out the lines of encryption. Then came Stellar Wind and Prism, the program exposed by Ed Snowden. As I crossed the street to return some books to the library the other day, I turned to gaze up the avenue. I remember marching down the middle of the streets in Chicago as a teenager. It was my first protest. My parents took me. We were marching in hope, of what, in hope that we could sh shout down the Afghanistan war drums. This was probably a week before shock and awe, a day in late September. I can't remember if it was at that protest or a little later, but I remember marching next to a group of middle-aged women with signs that said, Librarians Against Bush. I remember that they had literature on the Patriot Act denouncing the clauses that allowed the government to access patrons' borrowing history. How quaint, I thought, to be concerned that the government might know I am late in returning Smoke Signals, a social history on marijuana. I deposited my books in the return slot. Two, I've been growing my hair out. It started with not going to the barber one month. While lying in bed beside my girlfriend, sometimes I would practice tucking my hair behind my ears. Then I didn't go to the barber again, and then I actually decided I was growing my hair out. I can just about tuck my hair behind my ears for the first time in 10 years. I loop a strand between thumb and finger. The gesture is soothing, but it makes my ears feel foreign, like I'm tucking back someone else's hair, like I'm doing it for my child, like for myself's child. It's hat and bulky coat weather, but even still, I'm pretty sure I'm getting more ma'ams and misses. Or the one that always clenches the muscles around my rib cage, you ladies. You ladies want anything else? I can handle a few days' worth of excuse me, missus, if I get at least one sputtering sir, I mean ma'am. I'll take a week of the women's locker room at the gym for one what-will-it-be boss at the bodega. <coughs> it's a disappointing mathematics. I try to keep my footing on the gender space I've carved out by balancing the ledger of signifiers, boots versus an earring 
versus Carhartt versus my ass. I'm trying to let down my hair, my guard, my gender. When summer comes, I'd like to not cut my hair short again. It would feel nice to swim with long hair, feel rivulets of water down my back as I dry in the sun. But then I don't know if I'll be allowed to navigate through the streets with the anonymity I currently am privileged to hold. In the last four years, I've been hollered at exactly once. Usually, I get this extra half second to walk briskly by as he debates subconsciously if I'm a woman or not. But, if, but it was laundry day, and I was wearing my last clean pair of shorts, leftovers from a different gender. It turns out my body's femininity is confirmed by this one inch of skin right here. When the signifiers are knocked out of an exactly ambiguous balance, my body comes into external focus and out of my control. Balancing gender illegibility is increasingly difficult to maintain on the internet. The price of entry is a checkbox, a category toggled, and data knows a version of myself that I do not. Sometimes, when I've run out of other things, I worry about having an NSA file. I mean, I read The Guardian. <clears throat> I've downloaded every file on Chelsea Manning from the Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act website. There's this really chilling snapshot in the materials from her military trial. It's a picture of her barracks in, in Afghanistan. It must have been taken immediately after she was arrested. Her laptop is still open. There's her bottle of head and shoulders at the foot of her bed, an empty Pringles can, sour cream and onion. Sometimes, to send my search history off track, I find myself watching videos of middle-aged men in Vermont wood-turning in their garage shops. In one video, a man mounts a 100-pound tree stump to the lathe, running the gouge back and forth, peeling off wood in fluid cascades, exposing the bowl inside. Now, I think, does my search history make me look more like a libertarian? <laughs> Three. Last week, The Guardian featured a series of articles on a black site operated by the Chicago police. Supposedly for over a decade, Chicago cops have been torturing and detaining people for days without due process in a facility called Homan Square. Off limits to press and lawyers, predominantly black and brown Chicagoans are brought there before they are ever charged with a crime. They have been chained to a wall, relentlessly interrogated, held without access to lawyers, and then later brought to a precinct and officially booked. I'm scared by how unsurprising this news felt. The biggest surprise was that it was my hometown's black site that was the first black site in the country to get press. The Chicago papers are scrambling to downplay the British Guardian's revelations. The Chicago Tribune published an article arguing that calling the home and square black site is an act in it, <coughs> excuse me, published an article arguing that calling home and square a black site is an exaggeration since it isn't exactly a unique facility. The Chicago police don't need a covert site to conduct torture. Every Chicago precinct operates that way. In the late 70s, a family friend of ours left her car idling while she ran into her apartment to grab something. When she came back out, she found two cops looking in through the passenger window at her glove compartment full of unpaid parking tickets. 
they brought her into the local precinct. Now, it was that precinct's official, unofficial policy to conduct filmed strip searches for all offenses that involved women. Eventually, enough women spoke out about it and formed a class action lawsuit in the 80s. Her story ends as well as something like that can end, probably because she was able to afford a lawyer. She bought a house with her settlement money. I Google strip search Chicago police lawsuit. Nothing comes up about our friend's case. It has long since been buried by another lawsuit filed against the Chicago PD last year for the unlawful strip searches of 250,000 defendants. Four, Myofa myofacial trigger points are spots of painful tension in the muscle. Tenderness builds up in the fiber of a muscle as tension inhibits blood flow. Through trigger point massage, the therapist finds a tender spot and applies pressure. The, the idea is to allow the muscles around the trigger point to relax and encourage blood flow. Sometimes the trigger point is where the pain originates, the primary trigger point, and sometimes the pain has been referred from a latent trigger point somewhere else in the body. If, for example, the muscle here between the shoulder and the spine, if that is injured, the pain you might feel would be radiating from the neck and the top of the shoulder. Your body sends the referred pain to an area that forces you to restrict your movement in all the surrounding muscles that affect the injured area. I got stoned and thought about Ferguson as a referred pain stemming from the latent trigger point buried deep in American tissue. Five. The healer's house had rituals stacked up in the corner like old copies of the New Yorker. It was the new year. He told me it was time to get a journal with a small lock, and in the journal I was to write in the language of pain, which might not be English necessarily. He told me to write all the pain in its native language or pre-language or however else it existed unsaid inside of me. He said to make sure no one reads it until it's all out. The language of pain is an in, in, <clears throat> the language of pain is an encrypted vulnerability. In middle school, I believed I was actually invisible. I could go a whole day without talking, but at least I wasn't recognized enough to be bullied. I remember trying to keep it that way. I thought that changing anything in my appearance would render me noticeable, and so I never put my hair in a ponytail or wore the color red, or when I grew my little page boy bangs out, I never pinned them back. At basketball practice, the coach shouted at me, Rapkin, get those bangs out of your eyes or get off the team. I quit basketball. I had a dream that I was going on next at the poetry project, <clears throat> and all I had was my pain journal. I didn't know how to translate it back into English. As the older white poet who read before me returned to his seat, someone in the audience cut him across the cheek with a little blade. He bled, and the rest of the reading was canceled. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.